So good to see each of you here in person. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you are with us. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. And we are in week five of our series. We're going through the book of Nehemiah, and we're learning some valuable leadership lessons. And last week, we looked at chapter three, and in chapter three, we saw that Nehemiah built a team, and that team built the wall. And in 52 days, they rebuilt this wall and these gates that had been destroyed many years ago. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, where we will be this morning, I promise you we will not read three chapters together this morning, but in those three chapters, what Nehemiah does is he zooms in a little closer at the rebuilding project, and he gives us some insights into the adversity that he's faced. Leaders face adversity. This past Friday, just two days ago, I had the opportunity to serve my local school district. I was asked to sit on a panel of parents and interview potential new principals for the Sewer World Middle School. So I spent my entire day asking questions of these five candidates. And one of the questions that we asked each of the candidates was, tell us about a time where you faced a challenge or you made a hard decision. How did you handle the opposition? And what did you learn from that experience? And I can assure you, none of them struggled to think of an example. Because leaders are always facing challenges, uh, are facing adversity. I tell people who want to lead, if you want to lead, you better be ready to suffer. Because leadership means suffering. When you lead, you will feel alone at times. When you lead, you will feel misunderstood. If you lead anything, you open yourself to criticism. If you're the person who chooses where your family is going to eat and it's not a good experience, guess who they all going to blame? You. (laughs) You're the leader. You made the decision. And Nehemiah faced a tremendous amount of adversity. And we're going to learn some things together this morning about how leaders endure adversity. And one of the reasons why I believe that leaders face adversity is because leadership, one way of understanding leadership is that leadership is moving people on a journey from one place to another. Moving people on a journey from one reality to another. And how many of you have learned that sometimes people don't want to move? They don't want to change. They don't see the need. They can't embrace the vision. They don't, agree with, they don't agree with how the journey is happening. They don't like the other people that they're journeying with. They don't like their role in the journey. They think they should have a more important role in the journey. And when the journey doesn't go well, they're looking for someone to blame, and it's always the leader. Pastor Bill Kirk says it this way, if you want to make everyone happy, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream. <laughs> If you don't want to be, if you don't want to make, if you want to make everyone happy, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream. Nehemiah encounters adversity from without and within. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look first at how the adversity came to Nehemiah in four different ways, and then we're going to look at how Nehemiah responded. And first, when we look at how the adversity came, it came in four different ways. And the first way in which the adversity came was external threats. Jerusalem is surrounded by external enemies, the Samaritans to the north, the Ammonites to the east, Arabs to the south, Ashdodites to the west, and none of them want to see the walls and the gates rebuilt. And so they attack, they begin to attack, first verbally they attack the project. And in the beginning of chapter 4, they ask these questions like, who do you guys think you are to rebuild this wall? You're going to use these old stones and make strong walls. And they're mocking them and they're making fun of them. In fact, one of their one-liners is, if a fox runs on top of your wall, it's going to fall down. Pretty good trash talk, right? And so it starts with these verbal assaults, but then it escalates to physical threats. And the enemies say, all right, well, if our mocking won't stop you, then we're going to attack you. External threats. The second sort of adversity that he faces here is internal threats. You know, often when you're leading, the biggest threats are not outside of the organization. 
They're inside of the organization. And what we learn here is that the people of Judah begin to complain. The wall is about half built. And there was a lot of energy and excitement at first, like there often is with new projects. But now they're kind of like, ah, this is taking a little longer than I thought it would. This is costing me a little more. I have to work next to this guy, next to this person. And so they begin complaining in verse 10 of chapter 4. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. And we thought we were just building a wall, but we also got to move all this stuff out of the way. We'll never be able to do this. And then they actually start quoting their enemies. And our enemies say this about us. The wall is half done. They're losing momentum and excitement. They're beginning to believe what the enemy is saying about them. And there's discord and discouragement within the ranks. And so Nehemiah is facing this problem as well. At this point... Nehemiah's enemies switch tactics from trying to stop the work. They realize the work is going to happen to actually trying to do personal attacks against Nehemiah. And personal attacks against people work very well often because, sadly, we're often eager to believe the worst in other people. And this is what happens. So we see these external traps. The next thing that comes is that Nehemiah's enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, these guys who are Samaritan governors and rulers in other nations, they send Nehemiah four invitations. Hey, Nehemiah, we respect you. We see you doing a good work. You seem like a quality guy. Let's get lunch together. But they don't really respect him or like him. They're trying to trap him. And so, but Nehemiah has wisdom. He knows that four times they send him a letter saying, come meet with us. The fifth time they send an open letter that everyone in the nation can read. And it has all sorts of false rumors in it. Like, like Nehemiah is going to rebel against the Persian ruler. And so there's this trap, this trap to bring him into a place of personal danger, distraction from the work that he's been called to do, or even the possibility that the Persian ruler, Artaxerxes, will look at this meeting of Nehemiah and the other leaders and go, they must be conspiring against me. They're trying to trap him. But then the last thing we see in these chapters is that there's these internal traps, too. There's actually a priest or prophet, a Jewish priest or prophet named Shemaiah. And Shemaiah calls Nehemiah to his house and says, Nehemiah, you're in danger. This is true. He was in danger. Your enemies are going to come and kill you. So here's what you need to do. Hide in the temple. And Nehemiah realizes this is a trap. And Shemaiah has been paid off by his enemies. And isn't this painful in leadership that often like the people that you feel like should have your back and that you should be able to trust are the ones who can do you the most harm and the most danger. And Shemaiah says, come and hide. And, and Nehemiah realizes if I do this, I will at, at best I'll be seen as a coward. At worst, I actually will break God's law. Nehemiah is not a priest. In fact, there's some argument that he may have been a eunuch because he served in the Persian courts and he would never have been allowed not to go into that temple. He would have broken the law. So, these are the categories of adversity that Nehemiah faces in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We just went through them quickly to provide some context. External threats, internal threats, external traps, internal traps. And I just want to say, if you're a leader of anything, whether you're leading at your workplace, whether you're leading in your home, whether you're a leader in this church, that these still, all these categories still exist. There are always external threats. There are always internal threats. These you tend to see coming. These are the bigger issue. External traps the trap of flattery, the trap of things that seem like good opportunities, but they're not God opportunities, right? We need wisdom. Internal traps, the way in which our leadership might cause us to actually believe things that are not true about ourselves or to see ourselves as better than we should or to become prideful or arrogant. So as a leader, be thinking through these as filters. Where are the threats around me and are inside this organization or this team? And then where are the traps? Where are the, and by the way, the traps you won't see without other people's help and without the Holy Spirit's help. That's why we need each other. So this is what's coming at Nehemiah. Now, how 
does Nehemiah respond? And this is really what I want to talk about this morning for the next 15 minutes or so, is that leaders endure adversity. And there's a few ways they do it, and we learn it in the text, okay? So the first thing we learn is that leaders endure adversity by praying and planning. Praying and planning. Let's look at this, chapter 4, verse 4. When all these things begin to happen, here's Nehemiah's response. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. They were making fun of them. They were, they were making jokes about them. May their scoffing fall back on their heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. He said, may they experience what we've gone through. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. I want to leave these verses up just for a second. I want us to notice that Nehemiah, one of the things I love about Nehemiah, this very practical leader, this leader with a plan, is that his first instinct was to pray. And there's three things we see about Nehemiah praying here. He prayed instinctively, he prayed honestly, and he prayed unselfishly, instinctively. What is your first instinct when you're attacked? What's your first instinct when you face adversity? What's your first instinct when you are challenged. Well, Nehemiah's first instinct was to pray. Because for Christians, for believers, for people of faith, prayer is not a last resort, it's a first response. And Nehemiah knew that he needed to do something, but before he wanted to do something, he wanted to pray. And by the way, this is not just true for people who lead in churches and lead in ministry settings. Wherever you lead, if you lead in a school, if you lead in a hospital, if you lead on a construction site, wherever you lead, You need prayer just as much as the pastors need to pray before they make decisions. You need to pray before you make decisions and before you respond. And how many of you have learned that if you will take the time to pray and get God's perspective and his heart on a situation, it begins to change you and shape you and prepare you to better respond. And so he prays instinctively. Secondly, he prays honestly. I love, I feel like the prayers in the Bible are often more honest than the prayers that we pray sometimes. I feel like sometimes we're raw and we're real with each other, but we're sort of put together and polished with God. And I don't think we need to be. You do not need to spare God's feelings when you pray. And you know why? Because he already knows exactly how you feel. If there's someone that you can be honest with, it's him. He already knows. And Nehemiah is just airing it out here. He's like, this is terrible. I'm doing your work, God, and they're mocking us. And they're making fun of us. And they don't understand what it's like to be in our situation. And I love this prayer, this honest prayer. And I think as leaders, we have to be willing to pray prayers that are honest. This is the problem, God. This is how I feel about it. And would you please do something? Would you intervene? He prays things like, get them, God. Go get them. But then also, and this third one is maybe not as obvious as the first two. He prayed unselfishly. Now, It sounds like he's vengeful a little bit in this prayer. And sometimes you come across prayers in the Old Testament where they're saying, like, get our enemies and crush them and punish them. And you kind of feel like that doesn't sound like the way that we should pray. But what you'll notice is that if we can go back to, go back a slide. Yeah, do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger. Nehemiah is praying this prayer not for his honor, but for God's honor. Not for his name, but for God's name. It's not just that Nehemiah is frustrated and angry. He knows that this is angering God. And so he prayed this unselfish prayer, instinctive, honest, and unselfish. But what I love, if we go to the next verse, let's read verse 9. It says, 
But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. So they've learned now that their enemies want to attack them. And Nehemiah says, we prayed and we guarded. See, he planned, he prayed and he planned. Prayer never, we talked about this in week one, but let me just remind us. Prayer never leads to passivity, okay? Uh, Christian prayer is not wishful thinking. Christian prayer is not the same thing as flicking a penny into a fountain rubbing a rabbit foot and hoping something happens. Christian prayer is not sit back and wait for God to do something. Christian prayer is not I lob the ball into your court, now you do something. Christian prayer is partnership. First in our hearts, but then with our hands. We go into prayer to partner our hearts with God. God, would you give me your heart for this situation? But we come out of prayer partnered hand in hand with God to do his work to see his kingdom come. And so there's not this juxtaposition, there's not this um, sort of duality of there's people who pray and there's people who plan. Good leaders do both. They pray, but then they come out of prayer with a plan. And Nehemiah didn't say, God, we prayed. No, you're going to just send some angels down and protect us. He said, we prayed, but guess what? We're going to actually get ready just in case. We're going to plan. So they prayed and they guarded the city walls. If you are a leader, get into the rhythm of praying and planning. And if you just think for a second, as a moment of reflection, everyone in the room, all of us probably lean towards one more than the other. Some of us would say, no, you know, if it's a spectrum, and it isn't a spectrum, it's both of them at the same time. But if it was, some of you are more prayers than you are planners, and some of you are more planners than you are prayers, and the Holy Spirit wants to strengthen you and make you both prayers and planners, both. Okay. Second way that leaders endure adversity is by looking back and looking forward. In verse 14 of chapter 4, Nehemiah looks at the situation. He, this, is, this is when the internal threat of discouragement and discord is happening. The, the Jewish people are losing their hope. He says, I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. He's saying, look back. And in the Old Testament, most of the times when the Jewish people looked back, they looked all the way back to the Exodus. And they would often say, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and rescued us from that enslavement, 400 years of enslavement, he's not going to fail us now. Now, on this side of the cross, we don't have to look all the way back to Egypt. We have a different Exodus. We were brought out of something much greater. We can look back to the cross and say, if God did not spare his son for us to save us, what will he not do to intervene now? So he looks back. He says, remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And then he gets them to look forward, casting vision, and fight for your brothers, your sons. Some of them didn't even have sons and daughters yet. But he's saying for your future sons and for your future daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters and other generations, your wives and your homes. And some of them didn't even have homes yet. He's telling, you, telling them, look back and remember what God has done. Here is what God has done. But also, here's what God will do. And leaders get through adversity by reminding themselves and preaching to their own hearts of the faithfulness of God that's been expressed to them and through them throughout the years, but also reminding themselves of the work that is left to do. There's a song that we sing which says, if you're not dead, God's still got a work for you to do. If you're not dead, he's still got a, as long as you have breath in your lungs, that means God has a purpose and a plan for you here on earth. So we can look back and it will lead us into gratitude, worship, Trust, confidence, celebration, but we can look forward to, which will lead us into hope and passion and energy, that God has done a good work, but there are greater things 
yet to come. Do you believe that for your own life? Do you believe that for your family? Do you believe that for your community? Can you believe that with me for this church? That God has been so faithful. He's done so many good things. But listen, greater things are yet to come. We have just seen the tip of what the Lord wants to do. Next month will be the 35th anniversary of our church. 35 years of God. Yeah, we give God thanks for that. We'll take, a, we'll take a Sunday in August and just pause and remember, probably the 22nd of August, if you want to put that in your calendar. We'll just take a moment and we'll pause and we'll give thanks. But listen, I've been here for all 35 years. I, I look back and I give thanks. I give thanks. So many, so much good has been done in your lives, in the lives of people, in our community, in, in the, literally in the nations. We have, one of, we have missionaries who have been raised up from this church, pastors in England, missionaries in Ghana, people who are doing tremendous work all over the globe. And we give God thanks for the work that he's done for 35 years. But I believe that the best is yet to come. I believe that there are greater things yet to be seen in clay and in our community. And we, you know, we're going to face adversity. We face it all the time. But we don't give up because we can look back and see God's faithfulness and we can look forward and see God has a work for us to do. He has important work for us to do. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who began a good work will complete it. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We stand on that truth. So we see that leaders get through adversity by looking back and looking forward. The third thing that we learn in this text is that leaders get through adversity by wisdom and truth. Wisdom and truth. And so in chapter 6, Sanballat and the other leaders, they send Nehemiah a message. They say, come meet with us. We want to get together with you. But then he realizes they're trying to harm me. In verse 3, we see, uh, so here's verse 2, but I realized they were plotting to harm me. Now look at Nehemiah's response in verse 3. I love this. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you. And Nehemiah here, as a leader, displays the wisdom, first the wisdom of knowing that they were trying to harm him, but also the wisdom of knowing in every season what matters most. And leaders have focus, and leaders have an un, uh, unusual ability, listen, to in the midst of distractions and adversity and challenges, leaders can keep the main thing the main thing. Everyone else can get distracted. Everyone else can get um, sort of off the rails, but leaders stay calm in crisis, and they have the ability to keep the main thing the main thing. I remember reading an interview years ago with Steve Jobs um, from Apple, and he was talking, they were asking him, like, they said, which of your products are you most proud of? The iPhone, I mean, the, the iPad, the, all this sort of stuff. And he said, I'm actually most proud of the things that we didn't make. And what he meant was this. In order for us to make great products, we had to say no to so many other things along the way. There were so many opportunities. There were so many good ideas. I'm more proud of the times we said no than even the times that we said yes. And when leaders have this sense of wisdom and truth working in their hearts to give them focus in every season, and it changes from season to season, the question for each of us this morning, wherever you're at in your life, in this season, what is the main thing for you? On one hand, the main thing never changes for Christians. We're here to make disciples and glorify God. 
But, it, but, but in our families and in our works, that does, in our work situations, that does change from season to season. When you have little kids, your main thing is just keeping them out of traffic, right? And then when you get older, your main thing is helping them drive through traffic, right? So season to season, your priorities change. But in this season of your life, where God has placed you right now, what is your main thing? And how do you keep it the main thing? He has the wisdom here of knowing what matters most. But the other thing we see from Nehemiah, he has the wisdom of knowing when to be willing and bold enough to speak the truth. See, this fifth letter comes, and this letter is a big deal because it's an open letter. It's not a private letter. And I don't know how it got open, but it's a circulated letter. Everybody reads it. It's filled with rumors and all sorts of things. Look at how Nehemiah responds to this letter. Then I reply, I, I like his bluntness. He says, there is no truth. In any part of your story, you are making up the whole thing. And he knows why. He says, they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So, I love this, I continued the work with even greater determination. What I appreciate about what Nehemiah did here is it would have been very easy for him to now shift his energy to dealing with these lies and truth or untruths. He could have shifted all his energy to defending himself and attacking these people, but he knew that that actually would give them the victory. Instead, he simply spoke the truth and let it, let it propel him into greater energy, now with greater determination to do the work that they were trying to distract him from doing. If you're leading, listen, if you're leading and doing anything worthwhile, especially doing something for God, people will eventually attack you. They will attack you personally they will misunderstand you. It just is inevitable in leadership. There's no way around it. If you do not want to be misunderstood and attacked and criticized, don't lead anything. But if you're going to lead, you immediately open yourself up to these things. Now, here's some things for those of you that are leaders in this room. Good leaders take the time, when they're criticized, good leaders take the time to ask, is there any truth in this criticism? Even if I know your motivations are wrong, you still might unwillingly gift me with truth. So even if 95% of the criticism is wrong, good leaders are willing to find the 5% of the criticism that's true and say, I need to grow. So good leaders ask, is there any truth in this criticism? Good leaders also take the time to ask this, does the mission or the work need me to defend myself? Now, I want to let that question sit for a second because we all do want to defend ourselves. But Nehemiah didn't defend himself for his sake. He said there's no truth to these rumors because he knew that if these rumors got legs and began to run all the way back to the Persian king, that the Persian king would stop the work. The Persian king did not need the Jewish people rebelling against him. He would have stopped what they were doing. So Nehemiah hears these rumors. He knows it's a threat, not to just him personally, but it's a threat to the work and the mission that God has given him. And so he has to speak out with boldness and say it's a lie. It's not true. Now listen, there's a difference between defending yourself for your sake and defending yourself for the sake of the mission and the work. And God help us as leaders who get attacked and criticized from ever making defending ourselves our primary work. Defending ourselves is not our primary work. That's God's work. Let God do that. You don't need to defend yourself unless the very mission is a threat. Then you can speak out. And good leaders always take the time to ask, in the midst of this adversity, how do I continue the work even with greater determination? When Nehemiah was, um, when Shemaiah, the Jewish 
prophet tried to trap Nehemiah by having him go into the, uh, go into the temple. Verse 12, this is what Nehemiah says. Just another example of his wisdom and truth. I realized that God had not spoken to him. Now, how did Nehemiah realize this? God, Nehemiah had a relationship with God. God was revealing these things to him. This wisdom and discernment and this truth doesn't just come from reading books. It comes from knowing God and being in relationship with him. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. They were, hoping, you know, they were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. This is why we know it would have dishonored God if he went into the temple, that phrase, make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. But again, if Nehemiah is accused and discredited, the work stops. And that's his primary concern. It's the wisdom here of discernment. God, as leaders, one of the best prayers that leaders can pray for themselves is, God, give me wisdom to discern. King Solomon in the Old Testament, when God said, he was going to become the ruler, and he felt very inadequate and unprepared. And God came to him. Do you remember this story? And said, what do you want? Anything. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And as leaders, we need to ask. For, leaders value truth, and they pursue wisdom. They value truth, even if the truth is hard for them to hear. Even if the truth is inconvenient. Even if the truth isn't what they would like. They value truth, and they pursue wisdom. That's what we need in leadership in our country, in our city, in our state, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our churches. And then the last thing, and the band's going to come and we're going to close in a song. Nehemiah endures adversity by giving it to God. He gives it to God. And there's three verses I want us to see quickly here in these chapters just so we can see Nehemiah's perspective on God's work. 4.15, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans, and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. See, Nehemiah doesn't take the credit for it. He knows that God frustrated their plans. Look at this next verse uh, in chapter 420. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding. This is when he's preparing people in case they need to fight and defend themselves. Then our God will fight for us. Nehemiah sees that we're going to be prepared to fight, but ultimately I give this to God because he's the one who fights for us. And then lastly, this is how it summarizes it all in chapter 6. This, all of this adversity, this is the closing words on it. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah knew that his battle was not against flesh and blood. This was a spiritual battle and that God fights his own battles. And in these three chapters, one of the commentaries that I read said, we learned a bunch of things about God. God is unique. God is attentive. God is righteous. God is powerful. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is unfailing. And God will fight for us. God will fight for you. Give your battles to God. And here's what it means is that we, we serve a God who we believe sees all and knows all, and he will make everything right someday. Listen, let me close with this thought. There is a difference between fighting battles knowing that God is always and already at work and fighting battles worried that he isn't. There's a difference between fighting your battles, knowing that God is already at work in ways you can't see, versus fighting battles worried that he's not paying attention, worried that he isn't. The difference is not between doing nothing and doing something. In both cases, something will be done. But the difference, listen carefully, the difference is in your heart's ability to rest and rejoice, 
even in the adversity of battle. Even in the face of adversity, when you're fighting, knowing that God is fighting your battles for you, your heart can rest and your heart can rejoice. Listen, this will help some of you. You don't have to settle every score. God will. You don't have to right every wrong. God will. You don't have to put people in their place because one day, God will. And he fights those battles. And yes, we fight with him and we fight alongside of him, but he's the one fighting the battle. And Jesus Christ already fought and won the most important battle of all, the battle against sin, Satan, hell, and death. He went to that cross and it looked like he lost, (laughs) but he won. And through weakness came victory and strength and freedom. And because Jesus won that battle, we can fight our battles with hearts that are at rest, that find joy in the midst of adversity, and that give everything to God. Let's pray together.